This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 22, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Making the case for individual liberty often requires having philosophical discussions that are, at the same time, real to people. Few people have done this more effectively than Bob Chittister, producer of Milton Friedman's famous Free to Choose series. We spoke this weekend in Chicago about increasing the impact of libertarian ideas through storytelling. Being a libertarian or someone who is is well-versed in a lot of, let's just say, even the basic standard neoclassical economics. If you're trying to make an appeal to someone, there are you know layers of thinking that sometimes that you have to engage in. It's not just, hey, that guy's beating up that other guy. He should stop beating up that other guy. That's a very simple solution to what, you know, on the surface is a very simple problem and probably is a very simple problem. But the bottom line is that Communicating ideas that are uh, libertarian or uh, economically free market require those stages of thinking, but translating that into something that uh, is video, it's often a very daunting task. How have you looked at that task? First of all, it starts with who I am, and I prefer to use the phrase individualist rather than libertarian as a descriptive. Uh, and why? Because I think that is a way of describing a worldview uh, that is not based on scholarship, etc. And it's it's one that I think I can relate to many, many people who don't think about ideas, but who are very moved by the fact that they essentially want to control their own lives. Or they've not understood and given thought to uh, the actions that they take in the political arena as citizens that just drip, 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 incrementally erode their decision rights. And, And then the question is, if you start from that point of view, how do you best then reach those people and that is to show them a story that ideally they've experienced in some form or they've witnessed someone else experience. They, some, they connect with it. They can connect with it in an experiential way. All right. So in, in your experience then, uh, well, I guess, do you think it's fair to say that people who promote, as you say, individualist thinking have are at a disadvantage when trying to uh, elucidate or explain those ideas using the media, uh, especially narrative stories? Well, I think they're at a disadvantage in the sense that, if how to put this, it's fascinating, whether their individualism is, is expressed in a, if you would, uh, I'm trying to think of a better way to say this, but I'll say artistic way, or in a way that they want to somehow or other precisely define themselves. Uh, I would put it this way. I have a sense of wonderment. I just, I wake up in the morning, I think, wow, I see things uh, as I go through life, and I think, wow, this is a wonderful experience I'm enjoying. Now, uh, to a lot of people, that's the Super Bowl. That's sitting there in that group setting, et cetera, et cetera, 
and enjoying this personal feeling of elation, etc. Now, how do I tie that to the fact that that is the result of their choices, their particular ability to um, arrange their life in a way that they have the maximum exposure to whatever it is that triggers that sense of well-being, that sense of happiness, wonderment. Gosh, it's great to be alive. Now, if that means they want to go and live out in the boonies somewhere and be a hermit, uh, and they don't want the government coming and saying, hey, you can't do that because you're living in a house that isn't healthy, so we're going to evict you from that, uh, th- uh, and I'm using that as an extreme example, then I've got a basis to begin to get them to think about their role as a citizen and the fact that, as Milton Friedman said, if you want to know the cause or the reason for all these problems that you associate with the government, go look in the mirror. In the last uh, 10 years or so, what are some films or TV shows that you've seen? I'm thinking non-documentary products yes. <laughs> that you've seen that really, in your view, animate that sense of wonderment about look at how look at the wonders of the freedom that I have to pursue my own interests. Boy, that is a really, really tough one, Caleb. One, because I'm not very good at remembering the names of films that I watch. Uh, so let me think of trying to give you a meaningful answer to that. Uh, a, a little sidebar, I'm a very big fan of Harry Potter. And, uh, and, but I won't. I won't go. I won't pursue that too, but too it, far. But books and movies. Books and movies. Because I, I can remember. Because when I read uh, the Harry Potter series, I enjoyed it a great deal. Unfortunately, I barreled through the first four, and then so okay, where's the next one? And hadn't it wasn't out yet. But the, yeah. I think the fifth book, in in terms of if you're if you are a libertarian already, and you're witnessing sort of a large bureaucratic apparatus slowly being turned yes, because the wrong people right. are now in control. Exactly. And watch how that can punish people in a very substantial way. Yeah. I, that book really spoke to me yeah. in that well, way. Well, I've given once a speech called Hogwarts Libertarians. And I, and I even have a, uh, a um, Gryffindor robe and a wand that I made myself, which, by the way, is cherry, uh, cherry wood uh, infused with Wolverine hair. University of Michigan, I couldn't avoid, <laughs> avoid that. But uh, the, because there is a sense there in that book of, uh, well, the wonderment, I, I, again, I don't want to po- follow that too much further. Sure. But, I've, but by the way, I have read the books all the way through. I have listened to them uh, with Jim Dale reading them. All of, I've listened to them at least three or four times all the way through, plus watched the movies. Uh, but let me think of, a, of a, another example. And man, as I said, I, I'm sure it's there, but, I, but it doesn't come to mind. We're here in Chicago talking uh, uh, with some other people who are, uh, I guess I hate, the, I hate using the word creative as a noun, but I will for the purposes of this discussion, uh, talking about you know, where are individualists, to use your term, where are we best positioned to have a substantial impact 
in an area uh, that would deliver a lot of value for the broad public and, and where it might be easy to uh, get, the, get the point across. Yeah. And so, so what, what thoughts do you have on that just generally? Well, in general, it, there's – let me give you a couple examples uh, of the kind of way to uh, relate to people. Uh, and these, these are things that I, I've constructed. I say to people uh, – uh, today, for example, there were eight of us here. And I would say to the group, all right – um, which would you rather have? Are we going to vote on what we're going to eat? Or are we each going to select our own meal? And which is your preference? Now, I contend, and I may be Pollyannish in this sense, but take any group with any distribution in terms of political perspective and ask them that question, and they're going to say, I'd rather choose for myself. Now, again, I think our problem, to the degree that we're not as effective communicating these ideas as we uh, would like to be or feel we need to be, I think it's because we don't start by understanding we have to, we have to make accessible the ideas that we have spent so much time with, that we're very comfortable with them, uh, but the average person isn't. The average person doesn't have a basis for relating uh, to comparative advantage, for example. You say, that, what do you mean by that? We're going to play a ball game here and you're going to put a weight on your ball bat or something? Uh, so that if I that, use that example, saying, okay, with any group, say, all right, let's choose on what we're going to do tomorrow. The idea that group authority is the basis for decision-making. It doesn't matter, and that takes the kind of takes the government out of it, so it makes it easier to talk about it without polarizing positions. Uh, because group authority is uh, you and your family. How do you relate to your family? How do you relate to peers? It's a philosophical discussion, and yet at the same time, it's a very real thing. Exactly, for it functions at that level. Uh, an example I've said, and uh, we should do this. We never have. Uh, uh, for students to do a teaching unit in which we uh, dramatize the following scene, that uh, students have been out uh, uh, in the summer, vacation, and they've come back to school, and let's say these are seventh graders, and the teacher's asking each of them to report uh, what they did in the summer uh, to the rest of the class. And they finally come to, uh, to Larry, and Larry gets up and said, well, I spent the summer uh, mowing lawns, and, and uh, I did an awful lot of lawn mowing. Uh, uh, and the teacher says, well, you know, weren't, you know, didn't you want to go to the beach, or <laughs> why didn't you uh, just did lawn mowing? Because he gave the impression it was a full-time job kind of thing. He said, well, I, uh, no, I had a goal. I said, I wanted to buy a bicycle, and, and the only way I could buy the bicycle was I had to earn the money myself, and and then he reports. He said, "Well, I succeeded. I was able to by mowing lawn six eight hours a day. I was able to raise enough money to buy a fairly nice bicycle that I really want." And the teacher says, "Oh, that's great. Uh, how many of the rest of you in the class have bicycles?" And there's only two or three kids who raise their hand, 
And the teacher then suggests, asks Jimmy, well, Jimmy, uh, do you think it's fair that you have a bicycle and the rest of the kids don't have a bicycle? Um, uh, class, why don't we vote on the following, that Jimmy, because he understands that everyone ought to have the experience of riding on a bicycle, that uh, for the next month and a half, uh, he's going to, uh, we're going to, his bicycle we're going to use and we're going to share it with everybody in the class who have it for two days. Now, that kind of is like the 2081 uh, issue, the Harrison Bergeron thing, the handicapper general. Uh, but, it, but it's a story, if you put it in that context, and of course, one of our prime audiences is to try to reach that high school cohort, that, the, the, by the way, the challenge creatively is how could you do that in a way that doesn't look kind of, you know, funky, that the kids say, oh, come on, that wouldn't Cheesy. happen, and it's, you know, it just wouldn't work. But it's examples like that that are going to open the door to real discussion. Well, yeah, and to extend the analogy, both of the kid with the bicycle and what to have for lunch in a group setting, everybody thinks that the quality of the lunch that they're going to get, if this were a much more pervasive uh, uh, social custom, everybody thinks the lunch is going to be the same or the bike is going to be the same, but it won't be. No, it will it not. Would, it would be like if the United States had a referendum on what car should everyone drive. They all think they're going to get Toyota Camrys, but in fact, they're probably going to get some sort of uh, a, a old rotten Fiat right. or, or something that simply doesn't work. <laughs> yes, right. And of course, you and I will be sued now by Fiat for be, be, be smudging <laughs> I said an that old rusted Fiat. Old <laughs> rusty. Yeah, exactly right. Another thing, and, and, and this is another example of, of the way I think we can communicate these ideas that gives us a better chance over time. Now, none of this is going to work uh, in every instance with every individual. But I always ask a group of students the question, how many times did you vote in the last two years? And I'll say, did you vote once? And a couple of them raise a hand. I'll say, you vote twice, and a few will. And then I say to them, well, I voted probably 10, 12 times before I got here this morning. And to get people to understand voting in a different context, what is it that votes represent? They, they represent my expression of something I want. When I vote for something, it means I want it. Now, it's a, it's a pattern of decisions. Right. The, 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 if, I, if I go into the grocery store and I buy, buy Rice Krispies, I have voted for Rice Krispies. Now, the reason why I want to use that terminology is because, and I believe it was Tom Sowell who got me onto this way of thinking, is that if you, if you um, uh, vote like that, if you vote in the marketplace... 99.9% of the time, you're going to be satisfied with the outcome. You're going to be happy. You're going to be home. Now, if you're not, what do you do? Well, you either stop buying Rice Krispies totally and you just forget it, or you take that box of Rice Krispies back to the store and you say, hey, this is defective. Fix it. Now, when you vote in the way we traditionally think of it, 
How often do you get what you want? And the honest person has to say, never. Because, because when you vote in the traditional sense, we mean it, vote for people public office or vote for legislations if it's a referendum, etc., the end result is a bag of tricks and it will invariably include things that were not part of what you wanted in order for you to get the little part that you wanted, and then you find out that the little part you wanted was defective, and what do you do about it? Nothing other than you wait a year or two years to vote again and go through the same process again. Now, there's a little bit of wonkiness to that approach, but it seems to me that something like that brings it down to a level where you're much more likely to get somebody to say, Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Before. And so, and so, what you're call, what you call on people to do really is to uh, take their own lived experience and try to graft that onto typical political outcomes and say, "Do you see how unsatisfactory this is?" Exactly right. Absolutely right. If and you can apply it across a broad range of things. Now, some of it's a little more difficult. One of the other things I'm concerned about is to get people to understand that the statement, you know, don't judge me until you walk a mile in my shoes or one of those uh, ways of stating that, there's a certain sense in which I accept that. And it's the sense that if I drive through a neighborhood and I see several nice houses and then I come out of this house that's a, a mess that I conclude that those people are poor or they're, they're, they're disadvantaged in some way, whatever, when in fact it may reflect a choice on their part of where they invest their wealth. Now, within the neighborhood, if I'm living there, I'm not happy that they chose to direct their wealth somewhere else. But again, it's part of their choice pattern. And the political response to that is to say, oh, there must be a problem there, so we better do something to correct it. The problem may be that the couple would prefer to be out running around on their motorboat every weekend and spending what, what excess money they have on that rather than keeping their lawn mowed and up to date, et cetera, et cetera. So that appearances, we have to be very, very careful in thinking through why is that situation existing? And rather than jump to, and here's what happens. Politicians will take a quick, rhetorical, simple, down-to-earth answer for that. Oh, uh, they, they, had a bad, they had bad luck, they're poor, they're whatever, so we better do something about it. We as individuals should not allow the politician to take advantage of us in that situation because the reason they're doing it is to get our vote one way or the other, either to get us to vote against that legislation or for it. And we should learn to think it through and understand the economic way of thinking, which is there are all kinds of reasons why any situation exists. And, and it's scapegoating. I mean, in, in a sense, a lot of this ends up being scapegoating. Like there, there's this problem here. There, there must be some sort of person responsible for the problem. The scapegoating in the public sector can have really, really dramatic results than when 
McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's point out that the other guy uses lower quality ingredients, right? The, oh, the, sure. The, the, the practical impact of those things are dramatically different. Absolutely. Now, let me show you how outrageous I am. I have given public speeches in which I have called food banks frauds. And I was not terribly well received when I did that. Now, I had two reasons or three for doing that. One, I think it's absolutely incorrect to say that people are going hungry in the U.S. per se. That people are maybe going hungry in the U.S., but it's not because there's a lack of access to food on their behalf. The whole food bank is premised on just the opposite. People don't have access to food. These are poor people, etc., or whoever, and therefore we must provide it. From personal experience, I know, uh, from talking to pastors at churches who run food banks, uh, that that's not the case, uh, that, that the food banks offer an interesting opportunity for uh, youth clubs to get the candy they need for the summer camps uh, to offer. Uh, one minister said to me, he said, Bob, I get so frustrated by people who come here and ask me for dishwasher soap to use in their dishwashing machine. Uh, so, but then I'll concede that there are problems out there that appear to be hunger, but that's not the problem. The problem has to do with either a family situation, a mental, mental illness issue, or whatever. And, and then to challenge people and to say, all right, if your goal is to solve the problem, you're not looking deeply enough. If your goal is to feel good, then you give your three or four cans to the food bank and, and go off and, and uh, have your nice steak dinner at the local restaurant. And now, whether I win any friends or not in saying that, but I'm, I just, I found this. Milton Friedman, in 1977, I knocked on the door, the door opened. Uh, I said, uh, hello, uh, Dr. Friedman, I'm Bob Chittister. He said, oh, Bob, come in, and I'm Milton. And from that point on, very soon, he opened my eyes, not in a, I don't know how to put it, not in an intellectual sense that I then studied and I really understood fundamental economics. He just opened my eyes to look around me and in everything I saw be obsessive about, oh, no way. Now, why would it be like that? Why, is, why are things happening that way? Yeah, my wife and I have discussions like that all the time about why is this, why is this the business model? Right. Why is why you know why is this place dirty and that place clean? Exactly. And I say to students, why why do certain products get placed on the end display in grocery stores? Well, and I use that just as a as a metaphor for the whole point. Why is anything happening? And if you use the economic way of thinking and and working on it, it leads you to some very interesting uh, conclusions which are simpatico with my individualism. That these are the result of a whole series of decisions made by private entities, either individuals or corporations, etc. And in every instance, those decisions are usually two-part. 
there's, there's usually two parties to that decision. And my decision is, do I participate or don't I? If I do participate, on what terms, et cetera, et cetera. And, and when you add all those up, and, and it's the emerging, emerging society. But again, to talk to somebody initially with that as a starting point. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, have you thought about the fact that voluntary association among millions and millions of people, it, it leads to this emerging civil society that we all enjoy? Uh, what'd you say? It's not, uh, not a great you, starting point. No, it's not a good starting point. But if on the other hand, you start to just get them, and I mentioned wonder very early in our discussion, and that's kind of what I mean. Milton was the most curious person I've ever met about everything. You, you couldn't imagine uh, uh, getting together with Milton and talking about anything that he didn't start down a trail of inquiry uh, that just opened up eyes to, well, gee, I'd never thought about that aspect of this particular train of decisions that had to be made to get there. And once people, uh, it's almost like I feel people are being denied much of their appreciation of life because of that. They, they, they haven't opened their eyes. Bob Chittister is the founder and chairman of the board of the Free to Choose Network. We spoke this weekend in Chicago. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.